We're continuing our series in miracles, and today's story is about Jesus healing a blind man. It's in John chapter 9, and it's the whole chapter, so we can't go through the entire chapter, but it's a fascinating story, of, uh, and it starts off in a weird kind of way to introduce a miracle. There, Jesus and his disciples have come across a person who's blind, and the question that they ask, we'll be referring to this quite a bit, is he says, uh, you know, he's blind, so who sinned? Did, his, did he sin or did his parents sin? That was the main, that's the main assumption that was going through their mind if somebody had a physical ailment. Isn't that fascinating? And so Jesus responds, well, it's not that at all, and we'll find out what he says. But then he goes to heal the blind man in a very fascinating kind of way. He, uh, he spits in the ground, makes some mud, smears it in his eyes, blind man's eyes, and he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam which is a long ways away from where he was. And so imagine being blind, having to navigate your way through the city, not knowing exactly what's going to happen. He washes the mud off of his eyes, and miracle, he can see. Now, you would think that that would just be a very happy story. Well, there's a whole group of people that are not happy at all, and they're called the Pharisees. And the problem is, this miracle occurred on the Sabbath day. And healing was considered work, and you don't work on the Sabbath day. That's breaking the law. And so the, uh, the Pharisees interview, first of all, the blind man who's now can see, his parents trying to understand what's going on, and they reach the conclusion that, they, uh, that Jesus broke the law, and these people are now following Jesus, and so they're ousted out of the synagogue which means that they're out of their social community. They've lost all of their friends. They're now outsiders. Incredibly drastic thing. Jesus then comes along and uh, follows up with the guy. And then he makes this fascinating thought that he says, uh, you know, you can see with your eyes now, but there's a whole bunch of other people who now can't see, and they're called the Pharisees. And we're going to unpack exactly what that means. The context for this whole story is in John chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In the Bible, there's a relationship between physical blindness and spiritual darkness. Those two things kind of go together. And so Jesus is saying, when I come into the world, there's something that I'm going to do that's going to lift the scale off of your eyes, off of your spiritual eyes in a sense, and you'll be able to see life in a brand new way. Then on the, that's uh, John chapter 8. very next chapter is John chapter 9. And there's the story really of two blind people in a sense. One is the man who's physically blind. The other is a whole group of people called the Pharisees and actually the disciples of Jesus who are spiritually blind. So we want to ask two questions this evening. What produces spiritual blindness and what restores our sight? Let's look first at what produces spiritual blindness. We're going to look at two things. The first is blame. I've already referred to the verse in in, uh, chapter 9, verse 2. It says, who sinned, this man or his parents? So this is a very, very interesting way that we, I think, typically have to look at life, and it's through eyes of blame. 
it's not just an instance where they're just wondering, you know, why this guy was blind. It was actually a whole life orientation that they looked at life through the eyes of blame. Whose fault is this? It's got to be somebody's fault. Nobody gets sick for just no reason at all. So either it's his fault or it's his parents' fault, but there's something that's going on and we need to find the source of blame. Have you ever noticed when there's a tragedy that happens, and we can even, I even began to hear it in what happened in Turkey, where as soon as there's some tragedy, it seems as though one of the first responses, gratefully, one of the first responses is compassion, which is outstanding, but it seems like there's another response that's close on its heels, and it's trying to assign blame. Like, whose fault is this? And there's something, it seems, inside of the human heart that in order to fully understand what's going on, we need to know who's at fault for what just happened. And so there'll, be, there'll always be an investigation. And then the purpose of the investigation is to figure out who's to blame. And if we can figure out who's to blame, then somehow I think we can imagine we can correct things perhaps, but we somehow feel better inside because we've, uh, we've, we've accurately described who's at fault. It's possible to live our whole life oriented this way. We look at ourselves, we look at other people, we look at God through the eyes of blame and judgment. We can uh, walk through our day and as we're, uh, you know, as, we're, as we're lying down at night, we can think, was this a good day or a bad day? Was I good or was I bad? Did I do right things or wrong things? And then we think about the people in our life. Did you, are you, are you right or are you wrong? Is it good or is it bad? God, were you good today? It's a bold question to ask of God. Were you good today? No, I think you were wrong in some of the things. Like we, there's a, there's a way of looking at life that is through this kind of uh, judgment orientation. I think this is incredibly natural for us. I, you know, I, we can walk into a room, I won't say I, although it's true about me. We can walk into a room and we can go, uh, you know, oh, they look good. Oh, that was a bad day. Or, ooh, and they're smart. They're not smart. Uh, I don't know what they're thinking. Uh, what are they doing here? And it's just, it's possible to, to walk into any given moment and just have judgments coming out of ourselves. And it seems like the human heart likes doing that. We just like thinking that way. And Christians are not exempt from this. Are you in or are you out? Are you a good Christian or a bad Christian? And what is the good Christian like? Us. There's this, uh, there's this quote, I love this quote. Uh, this is what a, a, a woman says, uh, it could have been a man. Uh, Lord, help me forgive those who sin differently than I. <laughs> and that, I got to say it again because I just love this quote. Uh, Lord, help me forgive those who sin differently than I. <laughs> I just think that's so funny because if people sin like us, we've already forgiven them a long time ago because we get it. You know, I get you. And uh, you go, you're fine. But these other people who sin differently than me, I don't like them at all. And I don't know what they're doing, but they clearly have problems. And it seems as though we can live this way. 
We can even look at the, the Bible in terms of its laws this way. I've been doing, I just finished this week, and uh, my wife would applaud if she, I just finished writing a course that's based on the Ten Commandments. So I've spent the last, well, good chunk of time looking at the Ten Commandments. One of the things that was very interesting, so there's Ten Commandments, but there's 613 laws in the Old Testament if you add them all up. Now, if you and I, I think if we typically think about what the law is, we think that it's a list of right things and wrong things. And that all we have to do, I mean, if you have the time, you, measure, you, you, you memorize 613 things, and then you'll be great. Well, here's, here's what's helpful to know. We're going we're gonna to be preaching on the Ten Commandments after this series is done, but I, I can't help myself. Uh, the... Uh, the uh, the best way to look at the laws in the Bible, even the Ten Commandments, is as case studies. When you look at the law, the law was actually not, oh, how do I say this? The intent of the law was not to have each letter of the law strictly followed. It was, it was a, a, a picture of what right relationship with God and other people would look like. It wasn't like, do exactly this, and then you'll be fine, and then do exactly this, and then you'll also, like, for example, you know, uh, honor the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath holy. Well, what the Pharisees ended up doing with that one command is creating 1,500 more commands of how to keep the Sabbath. And the mentality is, I think it's in us as much as them, that Jesus is looking for this kind of moral perfection that is about rule-keeping. I just don't think that's the heart of God. The heart of God is about how to have loving, healthy relationships. And the reason why he gives us the law is to paint a picture of what loving relationships would look like. But we kind of forget that it's about love and relationship, and we just, try to find, we just try to follow the letter of the law, thinking that we're being obedient Christians, and we're missing the whole point. And I think that where this comes from is a judgmental heart that thinks in terms of right and wrong, good and bad, instead of loving and unloving. What ends up happening is we live a defensive life, if, we're, if we live a life of blame and judgment, who wants to feel condemned? And so what, what this ultimately looks like inside of us, I think, is defensiveness. And we tend to walk into moments with a bias, skewing it to how I'm innocent and you're like not. If you ever had a disagreement with somebody, I mean, years ago, I know. But have you ever had a, let's pretend, have you ever had a disagreement with somebody? When you're telling your side of the story, you're going to favor your side in terms of innocence. And even if I did something wrong, I was tired, and it doesn't count because it's Tuesday or something. And then, but you, you have a wicked heart, and everything that you did came from a very bad place, dark, very dark motivation. And so we'll judge their motives, justify our behavior, and somehow this captures what a wicked heart is like. And I do it all the time. It's, it's, it's a way of walking through life. It's a worldview. 
It's a religious worldview, even if you would not call yourself religious. And so what was the conclusion of all of this blame? Is you have the Pharisees looking at the Son of God and saying, you didn't keep the Sabbath because you didn't follow our laws. Well, the truth is, Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath. What's the whole point of the Sabbath? Rest and refreshment and life. Do you think Jesus gave a bit of life to that blind man? And he gets condemned for it. That's, that's not good. And we can do that. Where we, we struggle to move outside of our judgments and celebrate love and life. So it's the first way what produces spiritual blindness is kind of a blame orientation or judgment. The second is beliefs. At the very end, when uh, after the healing occurs, Jesus talks to the man who's just been ousted out of his community, says that, you know, I receive you. And he says, those other people are blind. And so the Pharisees say, do you think that we're blind? And here's his response, is you claim that you can see, and that's what makes you blind. Here's what's absolutely fascinating, and it's really hard to wrap our minds around it, so just follow me for a sec. Our, one of our biggest problems in believing in Jesus and following his ways are not what we don't know, it's what we do know. Our knowledge is a bigger barrier to trusting in Jesus than our ignorance. Look at what's, uh, what, uh, when they're interviewing, uh, when the Pharisees are interviewing the blind man, who's now not blind, uh, listen to his response. He says, uh, look, I don't, know, I, don't know about, I don't know about anything. All I know is one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. I've thought about that verse over and over again for years and years now. Like, I don't, I don't get what you're doing. Anyways, I can see now. And I'm quite happy about it, to be honest with you. They're not happy. Their beliefs blind them to being able to see the presence of God among them. Now, the, uh, uh, for those of you who've been through transformations, or we now call it established, you hear the story, so just smile and pretend it's super new and interesting. I remember uh, when I was uh, in my early 20s, and I grew up in a church that was a, it was a great church. It was a Bible-believing church and uh, kind, warm-hearted people believed in the truth of God. But what I was taught in the way that we interpreted the Bible is that miracles don't happen today. We just thought that. And uh, I, you know, I told a story about a friend of mine. We were living at the same dormitory, Kerry Hall. Shout out to Kerry Hall. And uh, and he did believe that miracles could happen today, and he was a great guy otherwise, but he was clearly deceived in that way. And so we would have arguments all the time about this. And then there came a moment when he prayed for me, and, and uh, spiritually speaking, scales fell off of my eyes, and I saw the Bible in a brand new way. I would read my Bible very, very diligently and was convinced that miracles wouldn't happen today, and I had evidence to prove it. Somebody prays for me, and now I read the exact same Bible, and it says the opposite of what I believed a few minutes earlier. My beliefs that I held on to religiously prevented me from seeing the life and truth of God. 
Now, here's the problem with that. We're a religion that believes things. We're called a faith, or a, right? So that's tricky. How are we going to believe things and kind of hold them lightly? Well, there's some things that I don't hold lightly. I don't hold lightly that this is the written word of God. I don't hold that lightly. That's not up for, uh, for um, debate. Uh, it, is a, it is an irreducible truth. This is God's word. Jesus is the son of God. I believe in the Trinity. I believe that he died and rose again. And then it starts getting vaguer. But what we'll do is we'll have tons of convictions, tons of opinions, and we'll argue. And it seems as though we, the deeper we study, the more narrow and rigid our beliefs become. One of the things, and then you, one of the, I'll just say that it maybe will be unsettling for you. Um, Jesus, when he quotes, I, I'm doing this off the top of my head, and I can't remember which way it goes, but Jesus says, as it says in Isaiah, and he was quoting Malachi. It's in the Bible. Like, what do you do with that? Like, was it an oopsie? <laughs> Did Jesus forget what he wrote? <laughs> like, what do you do with that? That's, that's disturbing. This is the word of God. There's no mistakes. And Jesus seems like he misquoted Isaiah. And now we get rattled. Why? Because the Bible isn't true? No, because our rigid picture of truth gets shaken now and then. We get people coming in who have sins that are different than ours. And we go, oh, you're clearly more of a sinner than I am. And so I can't understand you or respect you or hear anything that you would have to say. It's just judgmentalism. But where it's driven by is a rigid set of beliefs that make it hard to hear God afresh and to hear that he wants to perform miracles. Let me tell you where this ends up for me in light of the series that we're in. This is just a personal struggle of mine. I have some beliefs. And one of the beliefs is, I find it really hard to believe uh, in, in, in me participating in physical healing. I just don't have, I just, I'm not sure you want to see me if you've got one of those. If you have something spiritual or intellectual or psychological, I am on that. And I believe that God's going to help you in amazing ways. I got tons of faith for that. You come breathing funny or with x-rays, you don't really want to see me. And, uh, and Debbie will tell you, <laughs> I'll probably be on the floor before I'm praying because I've passed out from my phobia of all things medical. Um, but uh, so uh, that's a black hole of belief for me that uh, is very real. Now, that's totally arbitrary. Like, why don't I believe in that? It's in the Bible just as much as psychological healing is in the Bible. But I have a belief issue that I don't believe it. And because I don't believe it, I don't see it much. Other things that I believe, I see it all the time. I see people setting, set free 
from lies and demonic oppression. I see that all the time. It's very regular for me. My beliefs are determining how God shows up around me. What's so invigorating about this blind man is his simplicity. And I'm jealous for it. I find it inspiring. And I find that much of my beliefs are, have some truth to them. I'm a Christian. But often they exclude people. And they make me rigid and not cooperating with the life of God. In no way am I trying to belittle the word of God. But my confidence is in his word, not in my interpretation of his word. And that's a big difference. So the two things, spiritual blindness, blame, judgment kind of things, and beliefs. Thinking that I know what's going on in any given moment. What restores the blind man's sight? Well, the short answer is Jesus. And that's obvious. Jesus does something that, that no one else can do. Spiritually or physically, he can, he can restore sight, which is incredible. We see the blind man doing two things that help create space for Jesus to do what he does. And the first thing is that he had active faith. We already refer to this in, in, uh, in verse 7. It says, go, Jesus told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. This is active faith. Here's the idea. Doing precedes sight. Doing precedes sight. He did something to get the sight. Now, here's what I like to do before I get sight. I like thinking about it. I don't like doing. Uh, he did something in obedience that created space for sight to happen. I think that the main way that I'm going to have clear sight of God is by thinking harder or praying more, perhaps. But I think that Physical sight, or sorry, spiritual sight is all about me understanding it better and doing better research and longer thinking and creating more and more opinions. And what we see here is that sight is restored by doing what Jesus says, not just thinking about what he says. Now, one of the things that's very interesting in my marriage, um, there's lots of interesting things, and uh, one of the most interesting differences between Debbie and I is Debbie enjoys this thing. I can't even spell it. It's called spontaneity. I don't even, I'm not sure what it means, but I see it in her. I have the opposite of spontaneity. We were, uh, we were going on a, you know, we, we go on a holiday and uh, we've been there a few times. And with each time we go there, I'm enjoying it more and more because I know exactly what's going to happen. I love that part. Debbie says, I'm getting a little bored. How can you get bored? I know what's going to happen next. It's going to be super fun. We're going to do this and this and this. And so she lives in spontaneity. I, like, don't. She's closer to Jesus than I am. Because there's something about doing it first and then understanding that I think has biblical value. I don't like doing things first. I like thinking about things first and then deciding whether I should do it or not based on the evidence. 
There is no way that my mentality is going to create a miracle experiential life. Hers will. Mine won't. You don't think your way into miracles. You obey your way into miracles. And our sight cannot be restored by thinking through it. It's by doing what Jesus says. And in the doing, in that act of faith, we see things in a brand new way. I think it's incredibly powerful. I remember uh, before I got married, I have, just because I have opinions on everything, I also had opinions on parenting. And uh, I would look at parents who had children. I go, ooh, like you should do that better. And I have way, I can help you. I'm just, I just know like a lot. And then I got, you know, and I had some, <laughs> had some children and that all changed. Uh, because you actually can't understand parenting until you have some kids. I mean, it's not rocket science, but I was still arrogant enough to doubt that. Uh, but you actually can't understand it until you do it. You can't know how to follow Jesus until you follow Jesus. And if you try to load the front end, I'm going to understand it all first and then I'll follow Jesus. Good luck with that. It's never going to happen. You'll never get around to following Jesus. You got to follow him first and then it makes sense. Yeah? Very, very important. And finally, what restores our sight is active faith. we got to do something, not just think about something. I'm so encouraged, so I just got to say this. Uh, those of you who went on the bold evangelism yesterday, God bless you. You did something. And you did something that was outside of what you can control and are familiar with. And because of that, I heard, I heard miracle stories. It's just how it works. And finally, it's adoration. The, uh, Jesus comes back, which I think is just so loving of Jesus. He not only heals him, he discovers that he's ousted from the community, and then he comes back to him again. Because he doesn't just care about his blindness, he cares about him. So he comes back to him again. And then he introduces himself, because the blind man didn't have a clue what was going on. He says, you know, I'm... I'm God, basically. And then this is what the blind man says, or not blind anymore. Lord, I believe, and he worshiped Jesus. How do you and I get out of a blame-oriented life? Worship. Worship transcends human opinion. And the only way that you and I are going to get liberated from our judgmentalism is through the worship of Jesus Christ, who's far beyond. Your ways are not my ways. My thoughts are not he is, he is so far beyond our opinions, our small little opinions. Worship creates space for the miraculous and for the ability to see. So let's go back to our, 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 our first question. Why is there suffering? More particularly, why are you suffering? I can say pretty much every time I'm going through a difficult thing, I am mostly thinking about whether I'm to blame or someone else is to blame. I, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that's what I do. I just, that's how I think. 
I'm going through a difficult time. I assume I'm cursed somehow. Which, of course, is really weird because Jesus kind of went through a few difficult things. And I don't think he did anything wrong. But as, anyways, I think I'm wrong or you're wrong because if Christianity was to go the way that the script says it would go, we wouldn't have any suffering or any problems in our life. I quickly attach discomfort to sin. Might be true. The Bible says sometimes we suffer because we sin. But it encourages us to suffer for a different reason. But what's Jesus' response to blame-oriented thinking? This happened, verse 3, so that the works of God might be displayed. You can live your life thinking about right and wrong, in and out, good or bad, judgments. You can live your life thinking that way. Or you can worship me and experience love. Those are the two options that are available for us, I think, in any given moment. Miracles flow from worship, not blame. Miracles flow from worship. So I don't know about you. I want to see more miracles in my life. I want to see more manifest presence of the power of God. Every January, when we go through the week of prayer and fasting, every year and all year long, I'm praying for more miracles in my life and in your life and particularly in this city. We need more of the manifest, the physical presence of God changing lives and hearts. We need that. There's no replacement for that. Our way toward that is we don't think our way towards it. We act as though it's true in worshiping him in any given moment. We're going to uh, have some people over here who are going to pray during worship and after worship. If you would like sight, whether it's physical sight or spiritual sight, I would encourage you to come and be prayed for. And let's worship a God who's beyond our understanding and beyond our opinions. And let's be, can I say, naive about it, that he's just good. And we can enjoy that to be true. Could we please stand together?